Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Susie Dennison. I'm a Senior Fellow and Director of the European Power Programme at ECFR. And this week, we're talking about our new public opinion poll and a major report which was published this week on peace versus justice, the coming European split over the war in Ukraine. So I'm standing in for Mark Leonard this week as he's on the other side of the fence or the other side of the studio as one of the authors of this great report and one of my guests. And I'm very happy, therefore, to welcome both of the authors of the report, Ivan Krastev, who chairs the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia and is a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences, IWM in Vienna. He's also a founding board member um, of ours at TCFR, a member of Open Society Foundation's Global Advisory Board a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and the author of many best-selling books. And obviously, I also welcome Mark Leonard, director of ECFR, who you all know well, as he's the usual host of this podcast. So thank you both very much for joining me today. Ivan, can I maybe turn to you first um, and you give us a quick um, synopsis of what your paper says? What are you arguing? Listen, interesting papers uh, should not be easily summarized. Uh, And (laughs) I'm saying this because one of the important things that... uh, I'm sure Mark is going to agree on is that we had the polling in a moment which was a kind of a turning moment for the way the public opinion in Europe is reflecting what was uh, what is going on uh, in Ukraine. Uh, And uh, if I'm going to summarize, uh, I'm going to make my personal summary just in five points. First, Europeans are not divided uh, when they should uh, uh, decide whom to blame for the war and where the major problem and obstacles for peace comes from. This is a very strong uh, uh, majority in Europe that Russia is to be blamed for the war. Uh, the second thing which is also critically important is that uh, Europeans also understand the importance of this uh, uh, war. So. Uh, you can see in the way people have been answering, in the way people have been supporting policies that till yesterday are not going to be supported, that they understand that we're not just talking about some local conflict which is not going to uh, touch the future of the European Union. But at the same time, there's three important things that are also pushing us, and particularly in mind, should be important for the policymakers uh, to try to understand how the public opinion is shifting. The first is that people start to get tired of the war. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky in Davos was saying we should not allow this to happen, but it happens. Uh, In a certain way, people in different European countries, even in countries like Poland or Romania, where the war is just next door, had the feeling that their governments are talking too much about the war and they're neglecting some other problems that their societies are facing. The second thing that in my view is also critically important is that we see a growing divide in Europe, and divide which in my view is going to be very important, both for the domestic politics of the EU member states, but also for the relations between EU member states, between people who believe that the major priority is the war to stop as soon as possible, what we're calling in the report the peace party, and the peace camp, and basically the people who believe that the only way for the war to stop is if uh, Ukraine is going to be able to restore uh, its sovereignty over its territory, or at least the most of its territory. So what we are calling the Justice Party. And the people uh, in these two camps, the Peace Camp and Justice Camp, they have a quite contrasting views on many things that 
is going on, but also many things that should be done. Uh, starting of should we increase the military spending, starting basically what uh, uh, should be done and not to be done. And this type of a split is critically important because uh, on one level we see that the Peace Party is a much bigger party, around 35% of uh, the people that we polled stay in this camp. Uh, Justice Party around 22%. Uh, we can see that uh, also the countries are split on this. Uh, with countries like Poland, where the Justice Party very much prevail, and other countries, for example, Italy, for example, where the Peace Party is really much stronger. Uh, so all this is going to change the dynamics of the inter-European politics. And the last point in my summary is the fact that when you're asking people who's going to lose, who's going to win after this war, this is critically important to understand that people see not only Russia, not only Ukraine that have been destroyed uh, 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 by the war as the losers, but majority of people also see the European Union as a loser. Uh, and this is something that is uh, quite important. And uh, when we've been discussing with Mark, also what is the conclusions that uh, Europeans should do out of it, at least for me, the most important is that Public opinion that was the major factor that uh, created this unity moment uh, for the EU in the first hungry days of the war now is going to be much more divided. It's going to be much more to the European leaders to sustain this unity. But secondly, that uh, European uh, Union should try to use the momentum and get out of this war as a winner with kind of a different political and geopolitical identity and not just to be one of the losers of this conflict. Thanks very much, Ivan. You said that a good paper can't be summarised, but that was a great summary, so I hope it still means it's a good paper. I know it is because I've read it. Um, Mark, um, Ivan's top told us that kind of one of the um, the main themes um, uh, of your work is, is this peace versus justice division. Can you give us um, a bit of colour uh, to um, those two camps? Um, who are they? Where do we find them? Um, and what is it that sort of really characterises their, um, uh, their views on the Russia conflict? So the central question which uh, tells us a lot about it is is this question about what is the number one priority for us now? And the peace camp, um, people who think that the number one priority is to stop the war, even if it means Ukraine making territorial concessions. Um, and the justice camp, which is on the other side, are people who, who think the number one priority should be to punish and humiliate Russia, even if it means that more Ukrainians get killed and that there's greater suffering as a result of that. Um, and, you know, th th this is a div divide that runs through all of the different member states that we talked about, uh, but there are kind of bigger concentrations um, in, in different countries. Um, the... Justice camp is much smaller, as Ivan said, at a sort of pan-European level. It's only 22% of, of, uh, of Europeans. But in Poland, uh, it is 41% of people. It's a much bigger camp than the justice camp. But that shows how isolated Poland is from the European average. Poles uh, have felt very vindicated by what's happened so far. And you can see a shift in the dynamics within the EU with the Poles and countries from the Baltic, you know, leaders from the Baltic states, for example, who've been warning about Russia for a long time, feeling vindicated and feeling that history uh, is uh, proving them right. Um, and that has definitely been one of the dynamics of the early phase. But I think what this poll shows is that you could end up with, with a situation where actually um, their voice um, uh, is less uh, strong in the future because 
that camp is is not as as great. And the more sort of triumphalist, the rhetoric from uh, from uh, Ukrainians and from Eastern Europeans about defeating Russia, about reclaiming um, uh, territories which were uh, captured in the past, such as Crimea, the 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 more. I think that you could see this other camp, the peace camp, uh, recoiling from uh, from supporting it. What is clear is that both sides, um, you know, blame Russia for what's happened, feel a lot of solidarity with Ukraine, uh, are in favour of sanctions. But there are differences uh, between them. So in the, the peace camp, for example, um, people do feel this deep solidarity with Ukraine, but um, they are worried about uh the danger of nuclear escalation, more people are worried about that. People are also more worried about the, the cost of living. And people are also more worried about Ukraine losing out more than Russia. So there are people in the in the peace camp who are pro-Russian, who are anti-American. In uh, Italy, for example, 39% of Italians blame the US. At the same time, there are a lot of people who are who are who are pro-Ukraine and are more pessimistic about where the where the war is going to go. And it's their pessimism which leads them to want to have peace as quickly as possible because they fear that that war is going to um, break out soon. There is a sort of political divide around these things. By and large, people in the in the in the uh, justice camp are more likely to be on the right and people in the peace camp on the left. But that's not true across the board. Germany is one of the most interesting countries where, in fact, the, the most hawkish um, segment of German society are Green Party supporters. They are um, uh, much less likely to, to support the, the, the peace camp. Um, uh, and they're also much more likely, over 70% of them want to increase defence spending. Um, so you get kind of um, uh, strange um, uh, shifts, uh, and and the same is true actually in the in the Nordic countries where you can see that um, um, they are also because there are only four countries where a majority of, of people want to increase defence spending, and they are in fact um, you know some of the places that that are maybe most surprising <laughs> green voters in Germany, um, neutral Swedes and neutral Finns. Um, <laughs> And the polls, which is maybe less surprising, that they want to increase defence spending. Yeah. So the truism that, that this that Russian invasion changed everything for Europe holds out with your data. But maybe if we can uh, zoom out from the paper, um, I'm interested in your assessments, both of you, of which European leaders are reading this landscape most effectively at the moment in terms of their messaging around the conflict. Was there anything from the data set that jarred with the lines that national governments were taking or, or political groups? Who are the voices that you think are sort of properly representing the, the peace and justice camps at the moment among European leaders? Listen, we have not been doing particularly kind of the ranking of uh, the staying power of the political leaders in this survey. Uh, the, the natural leader of the justice camp is the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, which basically is talking and communicating directly with European societies. And you can see that uh, he had uh, quite a lot of uh, support particularly in some countries, because he managed to articulate the most important intuition uh, of the people who are staying in, uh, the, uh, basically, in the justice camp. And their major intuition is that if we're not going to have Russia's defeated, this war can come back again and again. And uh, the most important difference between these two camps, if you imagine them as two different reading groups, 
you're going basically to see the justice camp reading the Churchill's uh, basically speeches from the 1930s and the appeasement is the word that really is uh, shaping their imagination. And when you look to the peace camp, you can see them basically collectively reading Christopher Clark's famous book, The Sleepwalkers, about the beginning of the World War One. And there, the major story is that even unintended escalations can end up with a bigger war that can destroy everything. But it's not only Zelensky. I do believe that uh, the, the, one of the leaders of the Green Party, uh, the Vice Chancellor uh, Habeck, is very important to try to, uh, when we talk about voices now on the justice camp. Uh, and the most important about these voices is, in order to be powerful in this situation, uh, you should be kind of consistent in your views. Strangely enough, it was exactly Habeck's decision before the war started, before the elections, to take the risk to say that Germany should arm Ukraine. And this is in a pre-election situation, which allows now the Germany uh, uh, and to the Green Party in Germany to play the role that they're playing. On the other side, nobody can understand, listen, who is the, the natural leader probably of the peace party is the Pope. Uh, because in a certain way, it's always that's his uh, job. The, 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 <laughs> the, no, uh, but when you read now the opinion polls, you better understand uh, why the political leaders are saying to what they are saying. Nobody is going to understand uh, uh, the uh, peace initiative of uh, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi, knowing also that Draghi is one of the persons that have a very strong views on the sanctions on Russia and others. If he does not look at the opinion poll in Italy. Uh, and what uh, Mario Draghi hears very clearly is that his public wants to hear the word peace. And they want to be sure that the war that Europe is now fighting is a defensive war. It's not kind of an adventurism. This is not simply basically trying to, uh, to have a kind of historical payback uh, for this and that. And this is why Draghi is where he was. Uh, and uh, when you go to the different leaders, here history and geography are very important. For Poland, there is not the fear of war because they believe that they are in a war. And by the way, this is a major distinction between Poland and everybody else. While the other countries, I'm sure that uh, the Baltic republics are like this, uh, they're not feared that the war can come. They have the fear that the war is there. And for these East European countries, this is the fear of occupation and the fear of the nuclear that is the most important. So for Poland, it's not about one leader. This is a certain type of a consensus, and this is very much the never-ending war with Russia that goes through the Polish history. That's interesting. So it's not just the proximity of conflict geographically, it's also the sort of historical memory. Um, no, no, totally, because Romania, which is a country which is also not famous for being particularly Russia-friendly, uh, but the public stands much closer to where the French or the Italians are. Uh, for me, it was interesting to see how strong support for Ukraine is in places like Spain or Portugal, which are far away from the conflict, that never had much history of Russia. And in some of these countries, in fact, you have quite a strong pro-Russian feeling uh, recently. And this is interesting about the opinion polls. I was always trying to imagine, uh, because also in the beginning of the conflict, some other polls shows that Spain was one of the most strongly supportive Ukraine country. And my question was, why? And this is interesting. I can imagine that for many kinds of uh, Republicans in Spain, Ukraine today very much resembles them, Spain in the 1930s. 
And I can imagine for the many Catalan nationalists, the problem of independence and sovereignty and so on also resonates. So people can support for very different reasons and this combination of geography, history, but also politics and the economic cost of what is happening are all shaping public opinion. And the interesting story about the public opinion, the only true thing about the public opinion that we know is that it is changing and it can change very quickly. Yeah. So so staying on that point, um, Mark, um, uh, Ivan has talked about the sort of um, the, the different measures that are in play in terms of what different uh, leaders are pushing for here. Um, at ECFR, we launched last week a sovereignty index, a different publication, which was looking at what member states are currently doing on dis- different aspects of European power. And we found there that um, Europe is doing is more effective at the moment at wielding economic power um, than military power. And um, from this piece of work is 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 your, is your sense that that is in line with what European voters want uh, from the response to Russia on this conflict? Actually, what was really heartening and surprising about this was how much support there is for measures across the board, from military assistance to economic sanctions um, uh, between all these different countries. And that is something which was true as much of the peace camp as of the, the justice camp. Um, but the worry is that that incredible unity that we've seen could start to to to, to um, be threatened if people feel that the immediate existential threat which Russia was posing has been met, and that we're going into another kind of war. And I think that's one of the profound things that Ivan was saying. I think what we take from this is. Is the sense that right across Europe there is a sense that Russia's to blame, that we should show solidarity with Ukraine, that it's not just about Ukrainian uh, uh, territorial integrity, it's about our way of lives and our own security, that that's what's at stake. And our sense is that you can maintain a lot of European support for um, you know, military assistance, for sanctions, for even things which have been painful for, for, for Europeans in the future, if they feel that this is a necessary defensive struggle. But once they start to think it's a different kind of war, which is about humiliating Russia rather than about defending us in our way of life, then you'll lose more and more of the people in the peace camp. And I think that shows that the challenge is not necessarily so much about what we do, but it's more about how we explain it and how we make the case for it. And in that some of the rhetoric coming not just out of Kiev, but also out of a lot of European uh, capitals could end up being counterproductive and could actually end up putting more pressure on the, the consensus, which has been there so far. But it was striking how, how um, I mean, in some ways, I think the, it's the economic measures might end up losing support more quickly than things like arming uh, Ukraine because they, they pose a bigger that being said, the fear of nuclear escalation is definitely very present, particularly in in the countries which are further from um, uh, from from the front line of the the conflict, and is something which matters quite a lot uh, to to a lot of countries, and I think leads them to to be scared about some of the more escalatory 
uh, measures. There isn't support, for example, for us sending troops directly to Ukraine. Um, there's much less support for, for no-fly zones or for inviting uh, uh, Ukraine into NATO. Um, but um, there is a lot of support for military assistance, for example. So another policy response that's on the table, obviously, at the moment is Ukraine's application for membership of the EU. This is something which, in her visit to Kiev this week, Ursula von der Leyen has promised a response soon to the latest part of, of the application. It's obviously something which divides EU member states significantly at government level. Is that also true at, at public level? Or um, is, is there a difference here between governments and public? Uh, listen, the truth is that the public is not divided much on this, and for a very important reason. For people, the candidacy is a symbolic politics. Uh, and for them, this is a very strong message that Ukraine is one of us. The governments are concerned for different reasons. I do believe that there is no European government that does not understand how important this symbolic support for Ukraine is, uh, but they are afraid that uh, uh, by just pretending that a country in a war simply can put all its attention of opening and closing chapters and negotiating with the European Union uh, is putting into the question the very seriousness of uh, the European enlargement project. Uh, but... What comes from this survey, and this is, in my view, important, is that what Europeans are understanding is that we're in a moment in which we are defining also the borders of Europe and European Union. And this is an interesting uh, story because this war is a European moment, but it's a nationalist moment too. In every of the countries, part of the mobilization, as I said, a lot of historical memories come back, a lot of historical fears come back, a lot of kind of illusions uh, have been destroyed. One of the major is that Russia can be uh, a long-term partner uh, for the European Union. So from this point of view, locking Ukraine in the European sphere of influence, locking Georgia in, locking the Balkans in, Locking Moldova in is something that Europeans understand. But should it be done through the European Union enlargement? Should it be through the NATO enlargement? Should it be something else? I don't believe that the average voter is devoting a lot of time to answering this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they approach it differently um, from the leaders who obviously are grappling with precisely that. Um, is is that is the how? And, um, you know, we, we've been talking here um, a lot about um, the EU and rightly so as one of the major actors within, within this. But um, the survey also covered the UK. Um, what, from, from looking at that data, is there, is there any sort of noticeable difference in the way that um, Europeans outside the EU in, 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 in Britain see um, uh, this conflict and, and the response to it? Um, or um, is there broad sort of consensus with the type of worldview that you guys have been describing up to now? So- Britain is not that different from the the rest of the EU. It sort of occupies a middle ground between Western Europe and Poland um, in that the voters are tend to be quite hawkish at the more hawkish uh, end when it comes to both measures taken against Russia and also the solidarity for Ukraine. They are slightly closer to, to Poland than they are to France and Germany and uh, and Romania. However, they are also worried about nuclear escalation and about some of these other issues. We have this sort of third camp we identify, which we haven't talked about yet in the podcast, which we call the swing voters. And, and they're kind of a bit like Kissinger-I realists. So they tend to be very hawkish about 
Russian intentions and what we should do with the Russians, but a bit more cautious about escalation. And that group is the is that Britain is the only country where that's the largest group. It's bigger than the peace camp and it's bigger than the justice camp. And I think that's characteristic of, of British opinion. There are some interesting political divisions within the UK as well. By and large, the conservatives. Uh, supporters tend to be uh, more trending towards the the justice camp. Um, They uh, think that the government uh, is paying uh, enough attention or needs to pay more attention to to Ukraine, Um, whereas people in in Labour and the Liberal Democrats tend to more towards um, the, the, they have a larger number in the peace camp. They're more sceptical. So a majority of conservatives are in favour of extra military spending, but a majority of Liberal Democrats and Labour uh, supporters are against uh, extra military spending. And, and the, but actually, in those camps, there are a lot of swing voters as well. The one interesting thing which I chuckled about a bit is that the people most in favour of EU membership for, for Ukraine are, in fact, the Brits, and particularly the, the Labour and the, the Lib Dem supporting Brits, where you have uh, very, very high numbers uh, favor of it. So maybe their solidarity of Ukraine extends to offering them something which they'd like to have for themselves. Oh, you know, maybe they see a certain sort of revolving door policy within the EU that you come in and you go out and you come back again, you know, maybe they have a more flexible approach. But that is very interesting. Okay, just very briefly, um, uh, because we we have to leave time uh, for the bookshelf, because there are also other interesting things to read. Um, But what's your sense, either of you, um, for the coming months, um, uh, from uh, from this work and and your broader observations of um, of the European political landscape? Are we at something of um, of an impasse in terms of how far? Um, uh, the EU as an actor is able to go in in its tough response to to, to Russia, or um, do you do you see potential um, for us uh, to continue to to hold firm and um, uh, to 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 begin to address some of the concerns of the justice camp as well? The future position of the European Union is going to be very much the result of the domestic political dynamics and how basically the leaders are doing with their public opinion. Resilience starts from knowing your own society. And I do believe that one of the things that Europe risks is uh, taking maximalist positions that are not going to be supported by the public, but the others. If European unity is going to crack, if basically Europe shows any type of uh, hesitance to support Ukraine, to be honest, if Ukraine is going to be crashed down, uh, European Union is not going to survive it. Uh, so how to find this balance in which you're firm, but you're firm and keeping your public on your side? For me, this is this is the real issue. Yeah, indeed, a challenging time. So, Ivan, um, let's um, let's stay with you um, uh, and move on to our, our bookshelf corner. What is um, currently on your bedside table at the moment? Uh, listen, I started to read a very interesting book about the history of the economic sanctions because obviously. We are in a moment, it's called Quite the economic weapon. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, this is one of the things that basically we understand. And uh, Mark was very good at uh, pointing this out in his own book. In the world in which everything is weaponized, uh, the economic weapon is becoming critically important. And from this point of view, it's interestingly to understand to what extent economic weapon was not also oversold uh, to the 
policy makers and to what extent, and this is important for the European Union, to what extent you can really compensate military weakness uh, with uh, strategic economic power. So reading the economic weapon is not a bad idea. Yeah, to know know its limits. And Mark, what are you so reading? I just read a, a really... Uh, interesting and amazing essay in the London Review of Books by William Davis called Destination Unknown, which is um, quite a big topic. It's essentially about the um, the, uh, the collapse of, of a period of human history centered where Europeans thought of themselves as, as modern, this idea of, of, of modernity. Um, and uh, he kind of shows how a lot of our assumptions, um, which have structured everything about how we think about politics, about progress, about our life are, are coming unstuck, and that that period, which we thought of as as being kind of eternal and uh, and global, literally the end of history, was in fact potentially uh, going to be seen as something which was very short and very local and very contingent. Um, and uh, also, particularly uh, scary about it is this kind of notion that he has that that the the past and uh history is in fact much more important <laughs> in in shaping our future than than the agency that we thought we had so it's quite a a kind of scary um uh uh thing which has enormous implications for everything from from economic policy to international relations how we think about technology and my head's still spinning a little uh from it but i think it's a it's a it's a very interesting essay and it's a review of some really interesting books about uh, inequality and colonialism. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's well worth uh, reading. Maybe we should get him on the podcast to talk about it. Indeed, maybe we should. And it's a nice place to finish because he was one of the people that we consulted in the very early stages of our of our polling work in terms of um, uh, how to get under uh, political thinking about uh, foreign policy matters. So um, very apt. I'm obviously going to recommend Mark and Ivan's paper um, and we will put links uh, to all of these uh, different recommendations uh, on, on, on our website at ecfr.eu. Um, but if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or on ours. Um, but above all, please do give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download the podcast. But for now, from Ivan Krestev, Mark Leonard and myself, Susie Dennison, it's goodbye. The editor of this week's podcast was Marlena Riedel. <laughs>